Well, good morning to you. It's good to be here. We appreciate Scott and Jason. In fact, both of them have been at Cedarville um, this year in chapel. And uh, we apologize to our students for that after they left. But that's still, you know, <laughs> we're working on them. Uh, I, I love the last song we sang. And it makes, always makes me think of when I came to Christ. I was raised in, in Central Florida, which is much like living in Ohio and Michigan, as you know, because everybody lives in Central Florida. It's from Ohio or Michigan. And um, you can tell not only by the way they talk, but by the way they drive. But um, I was not a very religious person. I was in high school, one of the largest high schools in the nation. I played basketball, and I was in science, and I was going with a space program. That was my dream. I actually went to the University of South Florida and majored in mathematics so I could be an astrophysicist. That was my, my dream. God bless you. It keeps the germs from spreading. But um, the, uh, I, I got invited to this gathering, and uh, the only reason I went was because they said those two words would make every teenage boy's heart go nuts. Free pizza. So I went for some free pizza. I, because I love good pizza, I love bad pizza, I love pizza. So I went, and I was just overwhelmed by, by the message. And I said, I'm not very religious. And um, the reality that God said to me, I'd rather die than live without you. So he did. Became a man so he could die. And uh, because I knew I was a sinner, even though I wasn't all that religious, we all know that. We all know that we, we fall so far short of what we should be. And that the world is stricken by the curse. In fact, uh, first time I, I, I bought a Bible uh, at soon after that and um, started reading it. And uh, God changed my life through that because I saw in there the story of where I was. And if you know, if you, you, know, if you have your Bibles, you know the Bible opens up with man and woman and, and face-to-face fellowship with God. The Bible ends with man and woman and face-to-face fellowship with God. And in between is the story, not only biblical history, but human history played out. In fact, tragically, it's the outworking of the curse, which we find in Genesis chapter 3, where we rebelled against God and, and purposefully, purposefully turned our backs on him. And so God cursed not only man and woman, but the entire universe itself. So as Paul says, the entire universe craves for its redemption. And the curse... We see it out working through all the Old Testament with the horrible, horrible effects of sin. This is not the land of the living. This is the land of the dying. And all of us, all of us, not only face it individually, but we see evidences of it in our lives, in our families, in the world around us. If you even go to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, the last word of the Old Testament is the word curse. Curse is still with us. But what we are celebrating this week, beginning with Palm Sunday today, when Jesus is welcomed into Jerusalem with hosannas and the king is here in just a few short days, you know, turn into curses themselves. People shaking their fists at him. And he is betrayed, he's rejected, he's arrested, he's put on trial, he is brutalized, tortured, executed, dead, and buried. And one week from today, he rises from the dead. And all of, all of creation for this week, this week holds its breath and explodes next Sunday. 
So much so that the followers of Jesus Christ after that, if you read through the book of Acts, as I know you're doing now, so many times it says that they preached the resurrection because that gave hope to the realization that this life is not all there is because for us, death is not a period, it's a comma. At the beginning of the sentence, it's what goes on forever. Because God is jealous for us and loves us. Loves us. And um, the reality is that God, of course, is beyond time so that when you pray, God can spend all the time that you need one-on-one. He is not limited by that at all. If that ever gets under your skin, you will never pray the same way again. Because your words, your heart, your desires are heard and he responds. And when we sing, oh, how he loves, I mean, he does, he does. And I remember sitting there with a belly full of pizza, just so overwhelmed by how loved I was. And I haven't gotten over that yet, ever. When you go to the end of the Bible, of course, in the very last chapter of the Bible, you read, and there was no longer any curse. It's gone. That's what God has for you, for me. So what does that mean right now? Well, we we are followers of Christ. And whenever you hear a truth of God, you always have to ask, so what and now what? If this is true, what does that mean? And I have been captivated by the life of Jesus Christ because if there's anything that he says over and over again, it's follow me, follow me, follow me. And I'm not all that religious anymore. But I love Jesus. I want to follow him. I want to represent him. And I think you do too. Some of you are here today wondering what all that means. And some of you are here saying, I know the Bible, I've been in church a lot, but there's something about Jesus. I can't even be honest to Jesus when I pray. I have so many regrets in my life. I've had so many bad things happen in my life. Why? And I'll be honest with you, you may not get the answer why on this side of the resurrection. And so your question to God must be, with a heart of trust and faith, now what? What do you want me to do? Because you trust him. The early church was so enamored with the life of Jesus, so profoundly transformed, that they began to love everyone and to demonstrate the love and the sacrifice and the acceptance that Jesus Christ showed. Because let's face it, Jesus was always getting into trouble for the people who hung around him, right? And they began to love to serve, and even to die. As you know, back in those days, plagues were not unusual. And people died by the thousands in just a few days in pockets of the Roman Empire. Dionysius, historian, writing, talks about the Christians. And he says that those Christians, heedless of danger, took charge of those who were dying, attending to their every need, and ministering to them in Christ. And with them, they died, serenely happy, for they had been infected by that disease. And he goes on to describe the Romans and the Greeks that were at that time and how they responded. And he says, we behave in the way that is very opposite. At the first onset of the disease, we push away the sufferers and we fled from even our loved ones, throwing them into the roads even before they were dead. Christians were different in the way that they lived, 
in the way that they loved, in the way that they marked the life of Jesus by the people around them. Julian, who was the emperor of Rome, hated the Christians and did everything he could to get rid of them. In fact, he tried to set up a, a social service program because the Christians were so known throughout the empire as being the people that you went to if you needed something. If you were sick, if you were ill, you had any need, needed a place to stay, go find a Christian. In the first few centuries, the word Christian was very positive, even though it was an illegal religion. In fact, Julian said this. He said, the, those impious Galileans, what he called Christians, they support not only their own poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack any aid from us. And when Julian died in battle, it is reported that he shook his fist at heaven and said, Oh, Galilean, you have conquered. Those early Christians transformed culture. They prohibited some cultural practices like infanticide and abortion, incest, infidelity, and polygamy. One historian says that the cities were filled with the homeless and the poor. The Christians showed charity and hope. The cities were filled with strangers and newcomers, and the Christians provided community. The cities were filled with orphans and widows. There was a new expanded sense of family among Christians. The cities were torn by violent ethnic strife. The Christians provided a new basis for so social solidarity. The cities were faced with epidemics and fires and other natural disasters. The Christians were there to provide care. Christianity brought a new conception of humanity to a world saturated with capricious cruelty and the vicarious love of death. Christianity gave to its converts nothing less than their own humanity. No wonder Christianity overtook the empire when they had no social standing and no financial leverage, just the love of Jesus Christ. At the beginning of the book called What's So Amazing About Grace, Phil Yancey repeats a story that he told in his book called The Jesus I Never Knew. It's by a social worker in Chicago, and he writes this. A prostitute came to see me in wretched straits, homeless, sick, and unable to buy food for her two-year-old daughter. Through sobs and tears, she told me that she had been renting out her daughter, two years old to men interested in kinky sex. She made more renting out her daughter for an hour than she could earn in a whole night herself. She had to do it, she said, to support her drug habit. I could hardly bear hearing her sordid story. For one thing, it made me legally liable. I'm required to report cases of child abuse. I had no idea what to say to this woman. At last, I asked her if she'd ever thought of going to a church for help. I will never forget the look of pure, naive shock that crossed her face. Church, she cried. Why would I ever go there? I was already feeling terrible about myself. They just make me feel worse. When Jesus was on this earth, the sinners, the tax collectors, the traitors, all wanted to be with him. He never excused their sin or compromised his own standing his own beliefs, but he accepted them as they were, showed them the grace of God. They wanted to be with him. Why don't they want to be with us? What is it about church and religion that has turned away those who so desperately need Christ the most 
This does not compel them to want to go to a church or spend time with believers. My prayer is that as this century unfolds more and more that we will begin to see what it is all about to follow Jesus. And that's really what I want to talk about. We must, we must be different. Not just to be different, but because Jesus Christ has made us different. The Bible was given to us not just for information, but for transformation so that we might walk and live as Jesus has called us to. Now, being different for reasons that don't matter just makes us look weird. That's when, frankly, when you start adding politics and other things to it, sometimes we look weird. Have you ever seen the signs where it says, uh, have you seen this dog? Here's one I thought you'd appreciate. And what I like about it at the bottom, it says, have you seen this dog? Because it's awesome. <laughs> I mean, the dog, this dog is just great. Dogs don't do that. And it's just weird. And sometimes Christians are like that as well. We come across as just downright weird. But I think Christ has called us to be different in ways that matter. That meet the needs of the world. Because of sin, because of the curse. And we are there as Christ's hands, Christ's heart, and Christ's voice. We must live up to the things that we say that we believe. Before we go to a particular passage, though, I want to just read one more thing. This is on the Celebrity Atheist website. Lance Armstrong, this was written before everything came out about him. He says this, quite simply, when he was asked about religion, what's your religion? Do you believe in God? He said, well, quite simply, I believe I had a responsibility to be a good person. And that meant fair, honest, hardworking, and honorable. If I did that, if I was good to my family, true to my friends, if I gave back to my community or to some cause, if I wasn't a liar, a cheat, or a thief, then I believed that should be enough. A lot of I irony isn't there in those statements. And it's still up on the Celebrity Atheist website, which is a fascinating website, by the way. Well, I'd like you to turn, if you have your Bibles and you can see them in the dark, to um, Matthew chapter 9. I am captivated by the life of Jesus. And I want to know how he lived, what he did, and why. Because I want to have that same, same motivation and do the same things. At the end of Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 35, we have a summary of his ministry. Now, if you know much about the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew is divided up by these discourses or, or sermons. And the most well-known, of course, is the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. The next one is in Matthew chapter 10. So you have two chapters in between, Matthews 8 and 9, which are just chock full of miracles, of some short arguments that Jesus has with some of the Pharisees. It's just amazing what Jesus does. In fact, it's so overwhelmed me that uh, this year I'm memorizing those two chapters. I just finished chap uh, memorizing chapter 9. I'll go to the end first. Because um, I want in my heart and in my mind these things that are going on with the life of Jesus. So here's a summation, and I'll, I'll give you um, some other thoughts on this. Verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. Okay, did you pick that up? When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. 
Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So my first question is, what did Jesus do? This summary gives us some indication, but you, if you look o- over all the verses, what was Jesus doing? He was doing constant faithful service. Constant faithful service. It was never about Jesus. Jesus never was a self-promoter. In fact, when he healed two blind men, he warned them. It says he sternly warned them not to tell anybody about it. In fact, let me summarize it. I, I, I've done it this way for you. Here, here's Jesus heals. A man with leprosy, a centurion's son, Peter's mother-in-law, a paralyzed man, a woman bleeding for 12 years, two blind men, and a man unable to talk. Incredible healings. Secondly, he teaches as well. Jesus teaches about true discipleship, about fasting, about faith. And then he preaches about the future, forgiveness, authority, and faith. And then while all this is going on, he's working miracles as well. He calms a storm, casts out demons, brings a dead girl back to life. What a jam-packed two chapters this is. It sums up the things that Jesus was doing. Notice the three things that he was doing. He's preaching, teaching, and healing. But notice how the people responded, interestingly, in verse 33 and 34, just before we read the 35 through 39. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. The people were amazed when they saw the miracles that Jesus was doing, when they saw the ministry that he was performing. They said, this is amazing. We haven't seen anything like this. And of course, as we know, in God's economy, when he is really changing his message and focusing on something new, he will cause there to be miracles. We saw that at the time of Moses. We see it at the time of Jesus and the apostles. So the people have no doubt that this is God at work. It authenticates both the message and the messenger. But the Pharisees, now realize the Pharisees, they knew the word of God. They taught the word of God. They were at worship all the time. They gave sacrificially a tithe. And yet when God showed up in their midst, they did not even recognize him, and they cursed him. I can't help but ask, if God were to show up in my life, would I recognize him? Or have I crafted a picture of God that really fits me more than it fits him? Would I like what I saw? Would I like what I heard? And that's why we go back to the life and ministry of Jesus again, and again, and again. The Christ-centered message to the world, notice that what Jesus is doing is that he is going to every village, all the towns and villages. He's healing every disease, every sickness. He doesn't stop. He is faithful, constant in everything that he's doing. Teaching, preaching, healing. Those three things, you find them again and again in the Gospels about Jesus. Teaching means that you're explaining what God is doing here, trying to give a, a biblical perspective of what's going on in a person's life, of what's going on in culture, trying to give instruction on how you should respond in a Christ-centered way. That's what, that's what Scott and the other pastors do all the time. They're trying to teach you what it means to know Jesus Christ for your life in a practical way in today's culture. 
the preaching and the proclaiming is winning somebody to Christ. It's telling them what God is doing, the gospel, the good news, that God is breaking into our world of despair to bring hope, our world of death and dying to bring life. And then the healing is always interesting because what we do at the doctor's office, at the hospitals on a regular daily basis would be miraculous in the first century. That's why at Cedarville we, we focus on teaching our students to teach. We have a Bible minor for every student so they can explain so that it gets them going in, in a constant lifelong study of the Word of God and application of it to life. Everybody should know how to win somebody to Christ, to share the wonderful message of Jesus Christ, and to lead them to accept what Jesus Christ has done for them. The healing, the healing can be social, it can be psychological, it can be emotional and personal, and it can also be the, the, the physical. And that's why we have uh, a real emphasis in healthcare, from nursing to pharmacy to occupational therapy, all those things. And the idea being that we go out and minister in the name of Jesus. People will listen, because that's where the needs are. That's where the needs are. But the second question I ask is, why does Jesus do this? Why is Jesus constantly preaching, teaching, and healing? And you notice it said that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. They were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. The word compassion is a powerful word. It means in English, of course, to suffer with. Compassion. There is a Greek word, sumpatho, which is pretty much the same thing, to suffer with. That's not the word here. In fact, we don't even have a word in English. Because the word here is the word splunkna, which means your, your guts, your inner organs. He said when Jesus looked out over the crowd, now think of all that's happened. He's, he's, he's uh, been able to look at the Pharisees down with their arguments. He's been able to raise people from the dead, calm a storm. It is amazing. And he doesn't say, we're winning. Look at what we're doing. We are great. I'm awesome. Instead, he looks at what he hasn't done, at the needs that are still there. And the word splunkna, when it's used in this context, literally means to have an internal pain, a spasm inside that is so, so painful. And so Jesus is looking out over the crowd, and it hurt him so bad. It hurt. Not just compassion, oh, I feel sorry for you guys, but Jesus physically hurt for the needs that he saw in the world, the result of sin, which is why he was there. This is a powerful, powerful word, isn't it? In fact, it occurs in several places. Two of my favorite, one in Luke chapter 10, the story of the Good Samaritan. When a Jewish man is robbed and beaten and left for dead, and the religious leaders, those who knew the word of God, stepped over and around him. And it was the hated Samaritan that said, that the scriptures say that when he saw him, it hurt hurt him so bad. He had to do something. So he took care of him. He healed his wounds and took him and sacrificed his money, his time, his effort for this man. That if this man had been conscious, he would not have let that Samaritan even touch him, let alone talk to him. Jesus always had a way of turning a, a parable on its head by making people think about the individual and not so much what they were. 
and hurt. And then, of course, in Luke 15, five chapters later, the great story of what we call the prodigal son. The younger son humiliated his father by making him sell some of his possessions, some of his property, to give him his inheritance. And he took it and he ran. Spent it on prostitutes, wild living, found himself penniless feeding pigs. All he could think of was, Dad, he'll take me back, he'll give me a job. I've humiliated him publicly, but I've got nowhere else to go. And so he rehearsed a little speech we read. But the scripture says that as his son was coming back, his father saw him from a long way off. And it hurt. It hurt so bad. Because his son was coming back. And every parent here knows what that feels like, or would feel like. He's coming back. And so his father ran and threw his arms around him, and his son... He gave the little speech that he'd rehearsed, but his father didn't even hear. Bring the best robe, which would have been his father's. We're going to celebrate. His son wanted to come back as a slave, but of course his father took him back as a son. Just coming back was enough. That, that's our God, by the way. And I don't know what regrets or struggles you have now, but your father says, come back, come back. All I want you to do is come back. We'll work things out. He is jealous for us. It hurts. If I'm going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, I need to ask myself, what hurts me? Or am I just kind of sliding along in life? I get to go to church in a nice dark theater and I can do this or that. You know, the reality is that we are here for Christ. And whatever job you might have, whatever station in life you are at, job one is going and making disciples. How is God going to use you? Let God, let God break your heart, please. Well, the third thing is, of course, the question is, how am I supposed to respond? And our response is simply, we get busy. And we pray for God to send help. I, I think that's remarkable that we pray for God to send help. He changes the figure from sheep that are helpless and harassed to a field, of a wheat field. Not send more shepherds because the shepherds that are there, the Pharisees and the others, aren't doing much good. In fact, they're making people twice as fit for hell as they are themselves, Jesus said. He says, send out workers, send out workers into the field. He doesn't say, pray that they're going to get saved, but send out people to tell them. And sometimes some of you are an answer to somebody's prayer. I was with Eric Metaxas last week, and did you know, if you're familiar with Eric, it was a graphic designer that helped lead him to Christ. One fellow I'm praying for is a guy by the name of Brian Welch, Head Welch. He's one of the founders of Corn, uh, the thrash metal group Corn, who I understand has never, never provided worship here. At, uh, okay. But it was a real estate agent that was showing him a house that said, I need to share a passage of scripture with you. And one thing led to another. And now you've you got to read his story. Save me from myself is the story of his uh, conversion. Or see his testimony on I Am Second website. It's remarkable.
remarkable. I'm actually re reading his devotional book, 30 Days of Metal and Spirituality, it's called. It's, it's, it's good. It's good. But the greatest revival are from people like us who take seriously God's call to represent him to let our hearts break for the people around us because a lot of times we forget I have a long list of celebrities that I pray for every day to come to Christ a long list and whenever I see somebody on TV that really irritates me it's like God saying okay Bill you need to pray for that person you need to stop being irritated you need to see them through the eyes of Christ one of the great tragedies of today is our young people particularly when they see a celebrity oh they ooh and ah and they're just all over the fact that this guy is so rich she's so beautiful they got so much money and so on and so forth they need to see them through the eyes of Christ. And we sometimes have set them up, and that's the world that we've given to them to inherit. But, oh, my prayer is that, that young Christians today, when they see a celebrity, all they'll think of is they don't know the gift of God, and it breaks their heart. It breaks their heart. You've got people in your family, and it breaks your heart. People where you work, it breaks your heart. If it doesn't, it should. Drive us to our knees to be God's voice and God's hand and God's heart in their lives. I was speaking over in Thailand just a couple months ago, and this lady came up to me after I spoke, and she said, I am here in Thailand to establish schools for these children that have been saved from the sex slave. Because what often happens, many of these kids get saved out of the sex slavery, and they end up going back because they don't know what else to do. And she's setting up Christian schools for them, or that's her, her dream. I said, why are you doing this? She said, I don't know. And she lived in Mississippi. God just laid it on her heart, and she couldn't shake it. It just hurt. Every night she would weep for those children. So she set things up. She flew over to Thailand, and she's doing it. And it's amazing how God is pulling things together for this, this young woman because God gave pain, deep pain, for those in the greatest need. I was just down in Charlotte two nights ago with a, a businessman who is growing in his faith. It's exciting. He's in his mid-40s. And he and his wife and a, a bunch of other people, they provide meals for the, for the kids around the world in Ethiopia down in Nicaragua. In fact, they just left to go to Nicaragua after I had dinner with them. Um, a million and a half meals last year. Last year. And because they're so brokenhearted, it hurts that these kids have no food. And his comment to me was, as a new Christian, he said, isn't this what Christians do? And I thought, he didn't say, this, isn't this what Christians should do? He said, isn't this what Christians do? He just thought, that's natural. That's what the first century Christians were. How can we not help those that are suffering? How can we not be there? Because where there is suffering, there's Jesus, and we have to be there. Where there are needs, we have to be there. Because that's what Christians do. Well... How are we supposed to respond? When I'm with our students, I, I get to speak in chapel every, every Monday. Maybe tomorrow. We don't get snowed in. The joys of living in Ohio. And I grew up in Florida. What am I doing? But I always tell our students to ask questions about what you hear and then to do something about it. Because never forget that most Christians who have ever lived have never had a Bible. Even most Christians today in the world don't have a Bible. You do, or you have access to them. There's several sitting right over there. They never get to hear a message. You do. What do you do with all of this blessing of information and God's spirit through his word? What are you supposed to do with that? You've got to respond. 
Just don't let it be, oh, that was nice. A good time was had by all. What are you supposed to do with that? If all the Christians in the 300,000 plus churches in America really took that seriously, just think what would happen. I think the first century again would be flipped on its head and here we are again with Christians transforming the world. Not because they've got political power, but because Jesus Christ is working through them. So here's some things to ask yourself. Does my life reflect daily Christ-centered service? I mean, seriously. If somebody were to say, let me look at your life and tell you what they saw, would that be something they would indicate to you? Secondly, how much does the unsaved world hurt me? How much do the needs of the world around us hurt? Are we numb to them because we have so much? Thirdly, am I praying for God to send people to serve? And am I willing to be used? Ouch, that hurts. So here's some things to do. First, today I'm going to start praying daily for God to break my heart. Secondly, I'm going to pray daily for God to send people to serve. And thirdly, I'm going to be accountable for my life of service. You live your Christian life every day, one day at a time. His mercies are new every morning. We take up our cross daily. Just like an alcoholic who never agrees to never drink the rest of his life, but agrees not to drink today. In the same way, we need God's power and strength today, today, today. Pour yourself into this day. There are people that you're going to encounter today that need to hear from God through you. You need to hear from God through them. Be fully there. Expect things from God and watch what God does. Most of the time we go through life, we don't even expect God to do anything. And God says, okay. Or God is working and you miss it. You miss it. But to be aware and to be used by God, so full of his spirit, so, so actively wanting to serve. We are broken people. And God uses broken people. You don't have to have a lot of knowledge. All you have to do is say, God, use me. Just use me. Watch what he does. God will never say, oh, I'm sorry. Got too many people working for me now. Have you seen the economy? <laughs> this church, your life is his. And oh, how he loves you. Oh, how he loves you. And he wants that love to be communicated to a world that so desperately, desperately needs it. Are you up for it? Are you up for it? I mean, seriously, that's us. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much, mainly because you loved us first. And I pray, Father, we will not lose heart, that we will be available, and that this church and these people will recognize the wonderful message of Jesus Christ so that we can communicate and that we can love, that you can use us for your glory. There are some here that are really struggling, some that aren't even uncertain of their own relationship with you, and I pray right now for them to realize how much you love them. All they have to do is look at the cross, that there you died for them, their sins. Thank you, Father, for loving us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.